Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Julian Morgans, and you're listening to What It Was Like, the show that asks people who have lived through big, dramatic events what it was like. Today, we're talking with Larry Demery. He's one of the two guys who were charged and jailed for the murder of James Jordan Sr., who was, of course, Michael Jordan's dad. Um, you might have seen The Last Dance on Netflix a few years ago, and, and you'll remember just how profoundly Michael Jordan was affected by his dad's murder. He actually retired from the NBA about two months later, and he held a press conference in which he said, it's made me realize how short life is and how quickly things can end, how innocently. James Jordan was only 56 when he died, and he wasn't doing anything to invite trouble. He was halfway through a long drive and he had pulled over by the side of the road to take a nap and, and then he just never woke up. And you might be wondering, reasonably, why I'd want to interview someone who's killed a man while he was asleep. You might be wondering why I'm giving him a platform at all. And, and the answer is that I'm just very interested in how history-altering events feel when you're in the middle of them. I'm interested in the full spectrum of human experience even when that experience is, is really quite dark and horrible. And, you know, honestly, I don't actually think that Larry's a bad guy. I've been speaking to him for a couple of months now as we've been trying to line this interview up. So I've got to know him pretty well. And I, I've got to a point where I feel like this is one of those stories that was just tragic for everyone involved. It was tragic for James Jordan, not to mention his whole family and, you know, everyone who loved him. But it was also tragic for these kids, the perpetrators, and they tried to rob him and they ended up shooting him and the whole thing was a horrible mess. And like I say, they were just kids. This was Larry Demery, who was 17 at the time, and his, and his friend Daniel Green, who was 18. And they've both been in prison ever since. 
The other reason I wanted to do this story is that it's just such a wild collision of worlds. I mean, what are the chances that these kids, these anonymous guys from rural North Carolina, happen to get tied in with the life and career of the most famous athlete in the history of the world? And at the absolute peak of his career as well. And they did it accidentally. In this story, these kids, they didn't know they were mugging a public figure. And it wasn't until later, as they were rifling through his wallet, that they realized they'd just murdered Michael Jordan's dad. I mean, I mean, what kind of a strange twist of fate is that? What does it feel like to be in that moment? So I wanted to find out. So I posted a letter to Larry. You know how you can write prisoners' letters. So I just posted him a letter, and I, and I asked him if he'd appear on the show. And he agreed. So today's episode is a phone call with Larry. The prison he's at, they gave him a room with a phone so that he could tell his story in private. So that's what we're going to play today. And and just a word of warning, some of this episode's pretty hard to listen to. Like uh, there's a very detailed description of the murder itself and, and there's some detail on how they disposed of the body. So if you feel like that might upset you, please just skip this one. Or maybe just skip to the end because... Larry talks about his remorse and, and his learnings at the right at the very end, and I, and I think it's the best bit. So anyway, without further ado, here's Larry Demery. So Larry, welcome to the show. Thank you, William. Thank you. So do you want to start by describing where you are right now? Like you're in a room in a prison, right? Yeah, I'm sitting in a little room in an office with a case manager. You know, they usually like plan out a you know, what we're to do while we're here, and then, you know, hopefully it goes well, and they send us on our way, you know. And what's the, uh, like, give me a sense of, like, the prison that you're in. Like, how big is it? Actually, the one I'm at now is, is fairly small. It's like a 250, maybe, 236, actually, yeah, a center. I had recently left, like, when I was in Scotland, it's like 2,500, something like that. Wow. I was in my custody level now. I'm in minimum custody, green. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. So that uh, yeah. that gives you a little bit of freedom. Well, a little more. Yeah. It's just, you know that next step is on outside. On outside, uh, they got certain jobs here in school things that require you to go outside the fence and all, kind of like get you ready for, you know, the outside. I guess. Yeah. Oh man, that must be nice. Yeah. That must be nice. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, you've you've been in prison since uh, since what? Ninety three. Yeah, ninety three. Yeah. Yeah. Does it feel like a long time? Yeah, I know, man. Sometimes it's, I mean, it's hard to believe it's coming up on 29 years, but at certain times it's like when I see the kids around the house or that little girl that wasn't born yet, a month later after I got locked up, you know, that's when it kind of hits me that I've really been gone, you know. Yeah. Or see somebody I haven't seen in years, you know, not really, you know everybody's gotten older. And I'm thinking, wow, man, you know. That's you too, you know, but that's about the only time it really hits me for the most part, though, as long as I've stayed busy working or something. It's just going on by, man. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the events that sort of led up to this point. Um, so so I think they're probably the best place. I, I mean, I usually start these interviews by asking some questions around around people's childhoods. So, so maybe let's start there. Do you know, just give me a bit of a rundown on like uh, on where you grew up and what that was like. Uh, let's see, man. Uh, of course, uh, North Carolina County or uh, Robinson County. The area I lived in was like just a little 
I guess you would call it rural area out in the middle of nowhere in between a little town called Pembroke and Rowland. Uh, some people might call it the country, so to speak, but it was actually all right, man. It's, you know, as far depending on what the kids into, you know, I grew up fishing and, you know, my mom's side of the family, they like to hunt and everything. I didn't really get into that, but, you know, there was always something to do around there as far as that goes, but lots of swimming holes, you know. I mean, it sounds kind of idyllic. It sounds nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, but I understand you had a, a bit of a difficult relationship with your dad. Um, well, yeah, yeah. Do you, know, do you know, tell me a little bit about that? Well, he was, I mean, he was an alcoholic, man. You know, he just didn't, he couldn't deal with his own problems, you know, and they kind of like, they trickled on to his family. Because I love my dad, man. I, I don't want to make it sound like I didn't, but you know, it's just what it was back then. Yeah. Can you tell me about one of your earliest memories? Yeah. It's, I'm, and it's wild, too, man. It's like, I don't even think I was four years old, but... The first thing I don't, for the very first memory I have is uh, well, my dad and his baby brother, my uncle Gary. They were fighting in the yard one night, and uh, I remember my uncle, uh, the oldest brother, Uncle Junior, he was there too. All three brothers, I don't know what it was over, but it was pretty bad. I remember looking out the window and you know screaming and crying at my mom. They're tearing up my big wheel. It was like because they were kicking it back and forth between each other. What's a big wheel? Well, it was like a, a tricycle, something for a little kid, a little three or four year old, you know, before. Pre uh, bicycle, I guess you call it. Yeah. Okay, so they were yeah. they were smashing up your your kid's toy. Yeah, my toy. Yeah, kicking it back and forth. That's what my concern was at the moment. You know, mama they're tearing up my stuff. But uh, like I said, somewhere a few minutes later, maybe somewhere in between, I remember my uncle Gary running in the house and him and my mom like holding the door, trying to keep my dad out from getting in. You know, and I remember my uncle having this uh. He had a knife dangling, like stuck through his upper lip, just kind of like hanging there, you know. I think my dad had stabbed him in the face or something, but. Wait, hold on. So your dad had stabbed your uncle in the mouth with a knife? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was still kind of dangling there, man. Oh, man. So, and I remember that, and him and my mom, trying, you know, holding the door. And that's it. That was the first memory, you know. I told my mom sometimes about it, and uh, she was like, son, how, you know, how in the world can you remember, you know, I guess little kids, you know, two and three year olds. They remember more than we think they do, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess the reason I'm asking you this is is it because it feels to me as though maybe having a, having a difficult relationship with your dad or, or maybe having these sort of complications in your upbringing maybe led to just some of your behaviors later in life. I don't know. What do you think? Well, even now, I'm still going to admit, you know, I take responsibility for whatever I do, you know. But it took a while before I would admit to it, but yeah, I guess so, you know what I mean? It did, it did. Looking back, I'd rather got some kind of, you know, negative attention than none at all, or, you know. I, man, it had to have been something like that, you know, because just throwing things away like I did and started, you know, committing crimes all of a sudden, you know, it wasn't something that was like, in the background, I was like literally so to speak, the black sheep, so to speak, when it come to committing crimes and going to prison on what you know that particular side of the family. And uh, like so most of the people that I, that I would hang out with or ever got in any kind of trouble with, they were like in a similar situation that I was. Where the exception was that they like might only have mom there, you know, a single parent or something. Yeah, both, yeah. Both mine were there, you know, and I know a lot of people, you know, think that's a good thing. But it's not not always, you know, not always. And I would hang around with guys that didn't have a dad around, and you know, 
we roaming around at night. You know, kids roaming. You know, they will find something to get into. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, so tell me about um, so Daniel Green. He was like your good friend growing up, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the first time I, I, I saw Daniel. I met him in third grade, man. Third grade. Through, uh, yeah, third grade. This Hazel Hunt's class. But uh, I don't know. I don't know where he came from. It was like already in the middle of the year or something, school year. I remember, man, this guy, man, Wesley Hunt, out out on the yard throwing a frisbee one day. And Daniel walks up. He wants to play, I guess. And uh, I remember trying to take the frisbee from uh, from Wesley. They're kind of tussling around, and so I run over, and we're all tussling around, and. Next thing I remember, Miss Hazel shows up, and she was the kind of teacher that uh, she would make you give each other a hug if you got into little scuffles and stuff, you know, to yeah, make up. But after that, somewhere along the way, I guess I remember meeting his mom, Miss Ann, the first time because she came out to the school and she was like, uh, "I want to meet this little fella that uh, that Daniel's been talking about so much." Yeah, yeah. So you paint this picture of this like, quite a sweet friendship. I mean, you guys mm-hmm. met you met when you were really young in school. Yeah, uh, yeah. And you you know you, you sort of paint this picture of you guys going fishing in this in this rural setting and we, in North Carolina. It's nice. Yeah, we, that's exactly what we did. Yep, camping out. Loved it. Loved it, man. But then I'm trying to square that away with like later on, you guys committed one of the most infamous crimes of the '90s. Yeah, yeah. These uh, these two images feel feel fairly hard to reconcile. So, yeah, I mean, tell me what happened. Well, a lot of people don't. It was like I think Daniel was fifteen, maybe. He got into uh, some neighborhood guys where he lived. He got into a scuffle with them, and uh, they beat him up pretty bad. You know, I think a couple of weeks later, same ones. They came back and they was going to try to do it again, but uh, this time. Daniel picked up an axe, you know, and uh, one of the main the main ones was like, oh, you ain't going to do nothing with it. And the way I understand it, Daniel showed him that he would do something with it because it was like a year later when the dude woke up out of a coma, but he went to prison for that. So Daniel went to prison? Yeah. See, a lot of them, I guess the media isn't too much aware of it because like during the court proceedings, it was, uh, it was squashed. I forgot exactly the... What it was, I mean, something was done in court to where it couldn't be brought up, mentioned, or whatever. But uh, it was two years, two and a half years, we were separated again. But this time, he was in prison. And it was like, and when he came out, man, it was, uh, I say he was only out roughly two months, maybe, mm. before we were arrested and locked up on this. But something happened, man. He changed, something changed. Uh, I mean, not just on his end, but, you know, me too. A couple years, and then going from 15 to... 17, 18, you know, go through a lot of changes during those few years, I guess. But Yeah, man. I mean, it's yeah. like those, those years are rough for anyone. But I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I look back on those years, you know, puberty and, and just high school and just mm. like I wouldn't I wouldn't relive those years. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I understand. You, you told me that you guys were kind of getting into some sort of like crime sprees. Can you, can you tell mm-hmm. me a bit about that? Well, the way it went, man. I don't know how it works now because I haven't made it out yet, but hopefully soon I will find out. But used to, when you get out parole on parole in North Carolina, your PO found you a job automatic. Well, that was the case with Daniel, and uh, he had only had the job for like a week. And a few times, you know, I went, I'd go pick him up. But that same day, man, we got home. Well, we went back to my parents' house. We're just sitting there talking, man. But I know that he kept saying, "I got to do something, man. I got to figure out what to do." Uh, 
I got to get on, man, some kind of way. I got to get on. You know, he's, I guess maybe around the third or fourth time he said it, I'm like, what are you talking about, man? You know, what you trying to do? It was like I already kind of knew, you know what I mean? But I wanted them to say, but off the rip, I was like, what are you trying to do, man? I'm not selling no dope. What are you trying to, you know, robberies? You know, I, you know, just the way he was, what he was saying, I knew, yeah. you know, what he was, where he was getting at. So he was, he was scheming. He was kind of saying like, you know, like, like we, putting it out there, you know. But man, here's the point right here to where I don't, I, I still struggle with it. And I'm like, so what you want to do? And I just took threw everything away, man. From that day, you know. So what was his answer? What did he want to do? Well, it's like. We go around. We got. We had to get some money to start with to do something, whatever. It must have been. It might have been an idea to buy some dope because I remember at one time he did. But the only thing we could, you know, to think of, I guess at the time was robbery because it wasn't. It wasn't just a day or two. Yeah. We borrowed a pistol from his mom. I, you know, she didn't know. She had no idea that we had it, and we used it to commit the first one. And then it was like it was off to the races after that. So you guys. You guys went around committing armed holdups. Yeah, we actually did uh, two. Yeah, and you were holding up. A few other things. Yeah, I mean, several times we went out to do that, but you know, nobody. It was like random, random acts. You know, nothing planned. Sure, we talking like convenience stores. Things. Yeah, exactly. Because matter of fact, one was a convenience store. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So take me up to the the part where your story intersects with James Jordan's. Wow. Okay. Uh, on this on this particular night, like I said, we had already pulled you know Rob. I mean, the first one there was two couples like down in a motel. The second one at the convenience store. Like I said, there were several times in between we went out places looking whatever. So, but this was like the last. I remember that particular night. We didn't have any place we were going to be, but there's motels. You know, it was right by Highway 95 and Interstate here in North, through North Carolina. Motels all up and down, you know. That's kind of like one of our spots, you know, to catch somebody coming out. You know, people on vacation, traveling back and forth, you know. The idea being, shine if they're traveling, they got to have a pocket full of money or something, you know. And that's what we actually had been doing that night, just hanging out around the motel, creeping around, waiting on somebody to pop out. But on that particular night, though, I guess we had maybe been hanging around in the parking lot, the edges of the parking lot at the motel an hour or so. But, you know, right, not far from the motel. I mean, we're still out in, like I said, the interstate's here, but we're still out in kind of like country-type area. And uh, so I had my my, uh, my car that I drove, like, parked back up in some woods. And we would walk back and forth from the motel to the car, period, you know. And it was doing these walks two or three different times, you know, just get burnt hanging at the motel and walk back to the car for a second and do, you know, back and forth. Maybe that second or third trip, though, it was like the third one, maybe. Right beside the highway, we noticed the car sitting there, you know. Well, I did, well I, Daniel actually mentioned it, but the spot that he was sitting, it was like a, not an interstate 95 and then through the state to Highway 74 that comes through and off. It was sitting right there. But I remember him saying something about, man, I think, and he's always been a suspicious type too, you know, so let me, like, let me put that out there. But he said something to the effect of like, man, I think that might be the law, man, laying on us. He said something like, I think that's the cops, man. And I'm and I'm like, well, look, let's let's go find out. You know, I'm not one to keep talking about it too much. Let's walk, let's go see, man. As we walk by, see what, see the car, you know, 
just kind of noticed there's a guy in there, and I mean, realize you know, first time by it ain't it ain't the cops. Mm. So we're going back to the motel, maybe you know, maybe hang out another hour or so. So you were you were sort of hanging outside the motel trying to find someone yeah. to hold it's, up. Yeah, random. Yeah, just yeah. randomly. Yeah, that's all okay. it was. Nothing but, particular. But, but no one came out. No, nah, nothing that really you know. Nobody that struck us as being the one, so to speak. Yeah. You were looking for and, someone uh, rich. Yeah, well, yeah. There's certain, I don't know, I can't, there's certain things I guess you look for, a bunch of suitcases coming out or something, you know, but it wasn't nothing going on that night. It was pretty slow. Like I said, it was doing, maybe, I can't remember exactly. It's been so long, man. But doing one of the trips back to the court. No, I remember Daniel, he mentioned it first, right? He said, man, you know what? That was Alexis. I don't know what Alexis is. You know what I mean? They were like, from, I understand now that back then the car had only been out like a year or two, you know, some high-end luxury model by Toyota. But so we walked back by, you know, once it was decided we were leaving the motel, the idea came up that, you know, he said something about it being Alexis and let's go check it out. So let me just... Let me just get this straight. So right now, mm-hmm. you guys are walking back to the motel. Yeah, parked yeah. parked to the side of the interstate is a Lexus, like a fancy yeah. new car. Yeah, man, just you, sitting there, dude. And yeah. you guys, and there's a guy asleep in the front seat. So you guys are like, oh well, maybe we should. Late. Yeah, maybe this yeah. is the one. Laid back, you know. And then, as it was pointed out later on, we walked by again and checked him out, laying there, and see him laying there with all the. Gold on, you know, rings on his fingers and gold watch. And man, we actually thought the guy, we thought the guy was a dope dealer or something, you know, a drug dealer. To be on a ride like that and sitting beside the road, you know, asleep, you know, he's got, he don't, you know, obviously he's pretty confident in something, I don't know, but, you know, looking at all his jewelry and everything, we thought that's what was going on. Okay, so then what happened? Well, like I said, we just walked by a couple times, checked it out. And then the plan came up to, well, let's rob this guy, you know. And he's still in, just leaning back in the seat, sleep. Man, it's probably been, it's been two or three hours, you know. It's been a while. Like I said, the idea initially was to, and this was something else that was kind of strange, but the, on the passenger side, you know, the window on the, was halfway down. Yep. That's where we kept stopping, you know, we're looking in and just keep getting it. And, uh, we were supposed to get the guy, you know, wake him up, drive down the road somewhere eventually and just put him out, take his stuff. So what, what happened instead? Well, we went by the last one. The last time when we finally, you know, okay, this is it. Here's what we want, you know, this is the moment. Man, I'm, I don't I don't want to call it panic. I don't know. I really don't. As we were there, there was only one pistol, right? Daniel had it. He tried to hand it to him, and it was like, I remember him saying something along the lines of, uh, you know, I got my shot the last one, shoot him. No, nah, man, no, nah, no. Nah. The man was laying there asleep, you know. I couldn't, I couldn't do it, man. Yeah. I, I had it in my hand. I looked at it. I actually stuck through the window and everything, but. Oh man! I mean, how I do couldn't. you how do you shoot a sleeping man? That's that's. I don't know. I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I mean, it was. I ain't, I'm like I said, I'm not trying to make myself sound like no kind of innocent person or anything. I was right there and down with the program, but nobody was supposed to have been getting hurt to begin with. 
Never mind the fact one already had prior to, but you know, but to kill somebody you know, like that, cold blood, and that's something different, man. You know, it's hard. Like, I can't explain it, but I just know it's not. You know, it's not. And I remember handing it back to him. He took it. And then a second or two in between, and then the shot. And that was it. Just one shot, you know. While he laid there asleep. What I'm, What was, uh, I mean, like, what happened next? Oh, man. It was like, when he, when he, when he was hit, he just kind of moved around a little bit, kind of made, made a noise, like a moaning noise, just kind of like sat up real quick, sat up. Yeah. And just kind of laid back again, you know, and that was it. Just a few seconds and it was over, man. He stopped moving. Uh, yeah. How did you feel in that moment? I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know. I remember Daniel saying, hey, I remember telling him to help him move him. Help me move him, man. I can't move him by myself. But we had to reach out and pull him over from the driver's side over to the passengers so Daniel could get in and get behind the wheel. I remember doing that. And like I said, he got in, took off. I went and got my car. We met back at the trailer. And then from there, it was the next stage. So tell me, like, we've we've spoken previously about the first moment that you realized that you'd shot Michael Jordan's dad. Can you tell me about, like, pulling the car apart and and realizing what had happened? Mm -hmm. Well, as we were... uh, so we just took off down the road, man. Like I said, without a plan, didn't know exactly where we were going to go with it at the moment. But as we're driving, we're heading down, we're towards the town of Roland. And uh, we just pulled off. Pulled, you know, this, this place is like full of huge fields, cornfields, tobacco fields. We pulled off in a, in a cornfield, you know, check things out, see what was going on here. When we pull over, you know, we start, I get out. I'm in the back seat back here because Daniel's still driving. My man's over on the passenger side and laid laid back, laid out. And uh, I remember being like 3 o'clock in the morning, man, something like that, 3. We pulled into town. You know, Roland's like literally like a one-horse town. They got one stoplight, you know. And I remember pulling through, going up under the light at 3 o'clock in, three, three o'clock in the morning. The radio's bumping and the system's bumping in the car. Got a dead man. And I'm like, man, what what are we doing here? You know, when we pulled over, we went in this field, man. We start looking around. He's going through the pockets and taking his shoes off. And Daniel's actually the first person that said anything, right? Looking back now, I'm seeing, I went in the trunk. I saw some couple golf bags, uh, but I'm not really noticing anything, you know. And, I mean, and then Daniel says something to the fact, like, man, I think, oh, I believe we got Michael Jones dead here. I mean, just kind of like, I'm like, yeah, right. And uh, and he'll be showing up next, you know. So, what are you talking about, man? So he shows me, you know, he's got this big stack of credit cards in his hand, but he pulls the driver's license out and he shows me this, look, and it's James R. Jordan. I mean, that doesn't, of course, everybody in here from North Carolina knows who Mike is, but James R. didn't really mean anything to me at the time, you know. I didn't know. But, as we continue going through the car, right, going to the glove compartment, and the first thing I see is, oh, well, the register, 
the, the car was registered to both of them, had both names on it, if I remember how, I think that's what it was. And then other thing, the watch that he took off, the engraving that was on the back of it to Dad, that's what really set it off for me, right? To Dad, from Michael and Juanita. I don't know why, I mean, I don't know why I knew at the time that his wife's name was Juanita, but I did. And that's when I was like, yeah, I'm already tripping, man, because you know, we got this dead man here in the car with us, but uh, now it's like, whoa, you know, I don't, they're really coming now. They're going to be out there. I remember saying something like, uh, what was that? Somebody, somebody, the feds is coming. They, they ain't going to stop, man. We got to, they ain't going to stop. It's over for us. You know, I, I knew it that night pretty much, but, uh, now I start looking back again, over like in the trunk, in the back seat of the car. I'm noticing everything back there, you know, like one back one set of golf clubs got a uh, Chicago Bull sign on it, red and black. The other ones, the Carolina blue and white, you know, Tar Heels, shaving kits, from everything around, you know. And I'm like, <laughs> like I said, I don't know how I missed it to start with, but yeah. Shit, man. It was That's... really something, man. It was a, uh, you know, it's. Yeah. That's an intense moment. Yeah, yeah. And then like I said too, the fact that there's a there's a dead man a dead body right here in the car. And I've never been that was a first for me too, you know what I mean? I've never been that close to a dead person. I'm riding yeah. around with him in the car and you know then the fact here we are responsible for taking his life, you know. We're gonna take a quick ad break here and we'll be right back with more what it was like. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, so you guys decided to to get rid of the body in like a swamp, right? There was like a yeah. Well, that's okay. Now let me take you into rolling. That's why a minute ago I was already trying to go. But Daniel's grandparents lived there, right? We knew we had to get rid of him, get him out of there. But Daniel said, remember there was a waste treatment plant like right beside, you know, right by his grandma's house there in town. And I remember him saying something about, man, we can take him there, throw him in that whatever the waste was and that and the chemicals they eat him up. I'm like, whatever, man, let's go. Whatever we got to do, let's do it. Like I said, man, I remember going in, we're driving. By this time, we done left the field. We done took off back down the road. We know who we got here now. And uh, as we're pulling in, man, I remember, I said, Daniel, drive the, the radio wide open, man. It was like, what was the song? Uh, it'll come to me in a minute, man. I remember what the song was and everything, but we go, we get to this little waste treatment center, right? We're just driving around. I mean, it's not, not really a center. Like, here's houses all around it, and then here it is. You know, a little like in front of it, a little park, I guess, that the locals would go sit in or whatever, hang out. Three o'clock in the morning, though, man. Radio wide open, just kind of creeping around in the neighborhood. We can't get in. Since the last time Daniel had been there, there'd been a, a gate put up, and it was padlocked. We couldn't get in. He's still trying to find a way in. I, you know, I lose it. I'm like, man, what the hell are you doing? But, you know, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. The, all, the cops, man, they're, you know, you're trying to get locked up tonight, you know. And I remember, I remember him saying, uh, you got a better idea. And that's when I, and I was like, matter of fact, I do. And it was my idea for the swamp that you just mentioned. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that was my idea. And the reason for that was, remember earlier I was telling you I worked with my now wife's stepdad at the time. Yeah, yeah. Where we worked, or Crestline Modular Homes, it was right down the road from this particular creek or swamp that you mentioned, and that's how I was familiar with it. Knew where it was, you know, out of the place, out of the way, and yeah. So when he asked me, I got a better idea. I was like, "Yep, sure do." 
then we took off. And then that's where we, you know, straight down to Pea Bridge Road. It was like right in, right from on the borderline north of South Carolina. And that's where we dropped them, dropped them over, over the bridge, man. You just dropped. Do you remember that moment of just like bundling this man's body over the edge of a bridge and watching him hit the water? Yeah. I mean, because I remember having, I remember the tussle, like the little struggle kind of, both of us do. And we just got him over, man. And I remember, like I said, it's nighttime. I remember hearing the hit, hearing the water, you know, hit the water. And, uh, and that was it, you know. Yeah, next thing I know, man. Well, I found out later on, it might have been two weeks later, that he had got kind of floated down a little ways and got hung up on a like a limb hanging out in the water. And this local dude, man, going fishing, ran up on him. Damn, damn. All right. Yeah, so, it man. So I understand you guys, you really, you came undone because you'd been using the cell phone in the car. And this was 1993. Right. So, right. so cell phones yeah. were... <laughs> 1993, yeah. I, I tell, I've i told people in here several times recently. I just mentioned it again, but uh, I talk about cell phones. It's like, man, I left the street. Uh, Motorola pagers, Skytel pagers, what people were talking around, and uh, and where I was from, you were one or two, you were either cops or drug dealer at the time. Everybody, nobody else really told them, you know. But yeah, that's what was going on, man. I remember that morning coming back up the highway. From the creek, you know, after we dropped them off, coming up Highway 74 again, going back to towards Lumberton. Uh, I'm driving now. I mean, he picks the phone up there and starts punching numbers. I'm like, whoa, man, what are you doing? Just messing them dialing, man. I was like, man, you can't, uh, I don't think you can't do that, man, because when I'm understanding things, they can pretty much pinpoint where you're at on the road and all that, you know, from these phones. And, uh, I remember he went out, he blanked, man, you think just because I've been in prison? I don't know what's going on. I hear this happening. Nah, man, just don't use that. Don't use the phone, man. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And it was... But anyway, yeah. That was the thing that brought you undone. Exactly, yeah. Well, like I said, we're going back to his house that morning. Man, I done been up for a couple of days now. I got a crash, you know. And I did. I remember sitting, laying down on the couch, and I might have been there a couple hours, but when I woke up, Daniel wasn't in the trailer, right? I looked out the back window, there's the car, and he's kicked back in the seat, you know, with his foot out the window, talking on the phone. And that's actually the moment right then when I knew we were done. It was over with. Yeah. Nah, man. Yeah, it's coming. Uh, can you tell me about the very first moment that you saw, like, a news report or something that was talking about how Michael Jordan's dad was dead? Can you remember that moment? Yeah, yeah, sure do, man. It was... It was three weeks, at least three weeks later. But I remember it being on Friday. There it was, you know, Rob Sonian, front page, you know, James Jordan missing. And then it was the very next day, Saturday. Like, well, later on that night, around 11.30 or so, when they came came to see me the first time. You know? But I remember, like I said, I already, I'd been anticipating it, man. The, those three weeks after that, I went home, you know, I had... I, I had Daniel's brother bring me back to Lumpton. And when, when you saw the very first news report on the TV, how did it make you feel? Actually, man, it was, it might sound strange or whatever, but in a sense, it was kind of, it was kind of relief almost a little bit, you know, not that I wanted to get locked up or arrested. I still wanted to get away with it now, but 
man, all them weeks of going around, you know, just toting it around inside, not being able to, you know, I couldn't talk about that to nobody, you know, say nothing about it. And like I said, in any moment, anticipating, expecting the door to be kicked in, you know. So when I saw it the first time, I was like, well, you know, that's the beginning of it. You know, I just, I just knew, man, you know, I knew, I knew, I just knew, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and you were arrested. Yeah, like I said, the very next day. I mean, I think, uh, if I remember the reports right, Daniel was picked up the first time about 6, 6.30, that Saturday evening. And like I said, they came after me the first time around 11 o'clock that night, 11.30, something like that. Oh, man. <clears throat> and do you remember, you know, like, did your mom say anything to you, or was there, was there anything yeah. sort of emotional about yeah. that? Well, actually, that day, <clears throat> that particular Saturday, Nobody. I was the only one home. I saw them coming. You know, I stayed. Like I said, I lived out in the country, man. The highway was out there, and they had about a quarter of a mile before they could get to the house where I lived, you know, because I stayed down the dirt road. But I wasn't in the house when they came the first time. And the reason, it wasn't that I planned on running or anything like that. It's just I didn't want I didn't want to go down, you know, go up and my mom not know anything. You know, what's, you know what in the world was going on? And so I waited until... I knew they were supposed to come back that night, and they, and it was around twelve thirty or one o'clock when they came in. And sure enough, I guess there was somebody sitting by the road waiting to see. Cause just a few minutes after they came in, three or four cars pulled in behind them. I waited, man. Like I said, I'm I'm out, I'm out in the trees, out in the woods, watching the whole time. You know, I remember the first time they, you know, when they came. Like I said, I stay off the highway on the dirt road, right. Hmm. Man, when they started, when all the cars was like like a line down the highway, when they started turning off, turning off the highway onto the dirt road, I was like, man, I think I lost count about twenty five, and I took off and ran out the house and hit the woods, you know. There was twenty five police cars to pick you up. That's about where, I, yeah, I, I think I lost count at like twenty five, man. Shit. Because the only thing I can figure out is because they didn't know, they didn't know nothing about me. Yeah. And then. I don't know if you're familiar with all the stuff that went on, you know, was said in the beginning, but there was all this stuff going on about about my being involved, you know, gambling with the mafia, this and that, all kind of speculation out there, you know what I mean? Just conspiracy nonsense. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then I find out later that Daniel's been, he, he's already down there feeding that, so in a sense. Yeah. Hey, uh, I want to I wanna ask you whether you've ever been contacted by Michael Jordan or any of his people, you know, all these years later, is, has anyone no. from the family ever reached out to you? No, I have no, not at all, man. I, I, I don't know. It's, I don't want to say it's surprising, but at the same time, I, I look at how other, others that I know, like, have committed a crime against the family or whatever, and uh, like when they're going to court, trial, somebody's usually always there, you know, to and afterwards, they speak to the family and see what's going on, you know, how they feel about things. But I never saw anybody there, you know. Yeah. I heard I heard that there was an attorney that represented the family that was sitting in the proceedings sometimes, but I never know who, knew who it was. Or, yeah. Let, let's say that, let's say, I, I don't think he would, but um, on the off chance that Michael Jordan ever hears this conversation, w- would you have a message that you'd like to say to him? You know, I know there's no no words or whatever that you know, I'm sorry, whatever that can make up for or bring back, you know, loss. I was responsible for you know. 
But uh, I said, I'm not making an excuse. You know, at that time, at that age, whatever, I, I thought I knew what I was doing here, or made the decision to do, but, nah, man. That's, this is horrible, man. It really is, yeah. Yeah. But other than the fact, you know, I'm sorry, man. I, I mean, I hate I invaded, I invaded anybody's life like I did, you know. It ain't just, and not just about me being here, you know, but looking on all the people's lives that I did affect, you know, his, the rest of the families, you know, mine, Daniel's family, you know, they're all victims in a sense too, you know, because I know my mom, my poor mom, she's been with me this whole way, man, still riding, but she's done this time right along with me, you know, but I've had, I've still had her there, you know. So I think about my Jordan, Michael Jordan. You know, you know, my mom can see me, but he can't see his dad. And I think about things like that. You know, what can you say? You know. Yeah, I mean, I totally hear you. And just to be clear, I'm not, um, I'm not suggesting that you should yeah, yeah, I'm, apologize. I, uh, yeah, that's 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 not my style. I, I guess I'm just right. saying that maybe I don't know. Maybe there's an opportunity here to just make it clear mm. to anyone who's yeah. listening that. That you know, mm. you've thought about this over the years, and and you. Oh yeah, all the time, man. Yeah. yeah. Now the day is gone by, but I I don't I ne- and I, I never wanted it to seem like I did. Well, at one time, at one point, I did. I sent a letter to 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 his address, addressed to him. You know, saying, you know, saying I was sorry, and I was hoping that some way they could find it in their heart to forgive me for what I'd done, but. I waited. I waited to over 20 years to do that, man. Because I didn't want it to seem like I was, I don't know, I was coming up parole. When I began coming up parole after 20 years, mm. you know, any time before, I didn't like I was looking for something, some kind of hand, maybe, you know, maybe they'll forgive me and they'll ask for parole. Or, it wasn't nothing like that, you know what I mean? That's why I deliberately waited. So... If he did get it, or whoever got it and read it, you know, that it would seem more sincere. I guess, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Obviously, this was you were 17 when all of this happened. Yeah, and you're yeah. A, you're a much older. I don't know. I, I guess you're much wiser mm-hmm. now as well. You, uh, you've you've lived a lot more life. You you probably realize the the sanctity of life a hell of a lot more than you did when you were 17. Yeah, definitely, man. Definitely. This, I, I believe there's a time for everything. So, like, what we were doing, there's never a time for that. You know, serving God, protecting innocent life or whatever, okay. But for any other reason to take life, you know, something somebody's got or something somebody believes or the way somebody looks, you know, nah. Nah. There's never an excuse or a reason for anything like that, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. <clears throat> So I mean, like I imagine in prison that you've been there mm. for several decades now. So you experience mm. entire periods of your life, and I was wondering if you could summarize, you know, like what were your twenties like? What were your thirties? Uh, you know, just just go through the the decades in your life and and just sort of sum summarize them for me. Man, I know. Uh, well, like I said, all my twenties in here. You know, like I said, the first ten years or so, kind of like figuring it out, man. You know. Trying to find my way. And let's see, the 30s. I mean, when I hit 30, man, it was like, I don't know, I guess 
I was told that like every man, I guess, that tries to grow up, hits that mark around 30-ish or so. But, you know, you how can I, how do you explain? You know, you hit a point, you hit that point to where you, like, make certain decisions in life, where you're going to, what stance you're going to take on certain issues, whatever. But throughout my 30s, I decided, you know, how I'm going you know, how I'm going to think about things, my take on things in life. You know, if I learn, you know, uh, that's when I started really getting more into my, not that I really am now, and and let me say this that I really do I really do need to get back to that point. But uh, my spirituality kicked in, you know, more so in my early thirties. I started thinking about things like that more so. Hmm. Uh, toward the end of my thirties, I guess I'm looking for, during that time. I'm looking forward more to outside of this place, you know. Because by that time, it's, we're getting pretty close to 20 years. First time I came up parole, I was 30, 38. Yeah, 38. So. And how old are you now? I'm 46, man. I'll be uh, this August, 47. I turned, I turned, uh, I turned 47, August 3rd. August 15th will be exactly 29 years I've been incarcerated. Yeah. Oh, Larry, you've been <clears throat> you've been in prison longer than you're out of prison. Uh, you're you're up for parole next year, right? Yeah. So something's recently changed with my in the past year or two. I was I was coming up every three years, but because of some law changes and things going on, dealing with juveniles being tried as adults, and that has up my parole date. I mean, my parole eligibility every two years now. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you're up for you're up for parole next year. So you potentially might get out. What what will you do with your life when you're free? Wow, man. As far as I don't know, as far as work goes, I really don't know what I want to do. As far as like making a living, there's a few things I you know I wouldn't mind. I've learned a, a braille, a tra- uh, how to transcribe braille in here. That's a trade that's pretty cool. I, I wouldn't mind doing that but my main goal is to restore relationships and build relationships that I didn't have you know I told you about that little girl that was still in her mom in her mom's belly when I got locked up yeah she wants me a part of her life oh, I got man. five grandsons now five <laughs> doorsteps like doorsteps man doorsteps <laughs> I need to get to them you know yeah. I need to get to where they're at I don't want to see I don't see it in them now but who knows you know the oldest was 11 his dad's in prison. His dad's in prison doing thirty years of, of, for murder of all things in South Carolina. You know, yeah, so the likelihood of him, grandpa, his dad, on down the line, that cycle will keep on. So, I'm trying to get out there and break that. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the woman you were with, Angela, mm-hmm. you were with yeah. her when you were 17, and she was pregnant, right? And and she's right, right. She's still with you. You know, she's stuck by you all these years. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. um. You know, that's remarkable. I don't, I really don't understand it either, man. I asked sometimes, you know, we were together a couple, you know, two years. I mean, it was like my 16th birthday. The day I turned 16, it was like official. We were officially together. And uh, I don't know, I don't know what it was between there and 18 when I got arrested. Uh, I asked her sometimes, she said, I used to, I do little things for her that stuck out. You'd have to get her to explain that. I don't, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Well, she's, uh, I mean, she's obviously 
uh, communicated a lot of messages between you and me over the last couple of months yeah. to, to help yeah. organize this. So, mm. like, she's been she's been incredible. She's yeah, yeah, she's an amazing lady. Sure is, yeah. And I tell you, a guy that can a guy that's incarcerated and and can find or has a lady that stands by him like that. Wow, man. Yeah, hold on for life because they're priceless. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I guess we're getting to the end of this thing, and I I really I, I just want to hear I, I want to hear what you've learned. And there's there's two things there's two prongs to that. First of all, I'd like to know what you've learned about about media and kind of like history. Like you've kind of accidentally become part of history. Um, and then I and then I'd also like to just know what you've learned about life. Um, because this has been a big part of your life, you know. So, so let's let's start with the sort of media history thing. Like, what, what do you think you've learned there? Well, man, until uh, actually, Julian, until meeting up with you, I pretty much hated media. I mean, I understand the idea, you know, to keep the people informed and everything, but it's been my experience that uh, it was just too—I don't know—the sensational. You got to kind of like, I guess, you put yourself in my shoes, you know. And, Every time they're talking about it, it's not in a good light ever. You know, so I kind of. It's all right, man. I I hate a lot of media too. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, but like I say, every so long, every now and again, and here's one of those times you encounter somebody that okay, this is what it was really meant to be. You know, keep keep folks informed or whatever, but not to smear or put folks down, but just to get it out there, get the truth out or whatever it may be. You know, but. Like I said, just the way you the way you approach. Like over the years, you know, I've got several letters or people called the prisons, want to talk or whatever. But it was just I don't know when I read your letter and I, like the sincerity in it. You told me exactly what you were after, what you wanted, and blah blah blah. And I was like, wow, you know, kind of impressed me, dude. So <laughs> I guess you say you restored my faith in the in the, in the media, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, yeah. man. I yeah. wouldn't. I wouldn't have, uh, don't have too much faith for the media. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. Let's see. You were talking about life? Yeah, life. What, have you, what have you learned about life? It's too short. You got to make the most out of it, you know what I mean? Spend the most time you can with the ones you love and just be the best person you can, man, because I'm looking back, hindsight's always twenty twenty. You know, you look back and all that you missed or what you could have done, this and that, but... If you take it to the fullest every day, you know, you won't have to worry about that. If you've enjoyed today's episode and you're thinking, hey, I've got a story that's kind of similar to that, something interesting but surprising, then get in touch. We're always looking for story suggestions or, or feedback or, or whatever. So hit me up. I'm Julian Morgans on Instagram and Morgans Julian on Twitter. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Tuffery. It was edited and mixed by Jimmy Saunders, who also did our theme music. Our cover art was by Naomi Lee Beveridge, and our intern was Maddie Runting. And a huge thanks to Katie Hirschroeder for mailing my letter to Larry, and to Larry's wife, Angela, who passed messages back and forth between me and Larry for, for months. And this whole thing has been a super real production. <laughs>